Welcome, my darling true crime angels, to Websleuth Radio Podcast. My name is Trisha Griffith, the very proud owner of Websleuth.com. If I do say so myself, the very best true crime discussion forum on the internet. And our guest today, Mr. Mark Olshaker. Now, you will recognize that name because Mark Olshaker has a writing partner. He writes with John Douglas, and they have a new book out called The Killer Across the Table, Unlocking the Secrets of Serial Killers and Predators with the FBI's original Mind Hunter. That's John Douglas with us today, Mark Olshaker. And Mr. Olshaker, thank you so much for joining us on Web Sleuth Radio Podcast. I do appreciate it. Thank you, Tricia, and I will apologize to your listeners in advance. I'm um, just recovering my voice after a cold, but I think I can make myself understood. You sound perfectly clear, much better than I do right. on my best day, so don't worry. It'll <laughs> we'll be just fine. Okay, uh, first of all, and this is one question that I get asked a lot and, and people that I work with get asked a lot, why in the world true crime? What brought you to this, this venue of true crime and meeting up with John Douglas? Well, that is an interesting question and an interesting origin story. I guess as a writer and a novelist and a documentary filmmaker, I'd always been interested in true crime and the reason people do the things they do. I'd written several novels on my own in the thriller variety, and I was also a documentary filmmaker, mostly for PBS. And uh, I had done a number of programs for NOVA, the PBS Science Series, and like so many other people, I had read The Silence of the Lambs, thought it was fascinating, and I approached the executive producer of NOVA, and I said, look, I read this book, it's terrific, I understand that they are making a movie out of it, and if the movie's anywhere near as good as the book, I think it's going to be a big hit. So why don't we do a program about the real story, the real behind-the-scenes look at what these uh, FBI behavioral profilers are really like? And so I got the go-ahead, we went to Quantico, we started looking around. In those days, um, before it became a big genre, serial killers became a big genre of their own. They were uh, welcoming us. This was quite a bit before 9-11 when security got really tight. And uh, so we ended up doing a film called Mind of a Serial Killer that was nominated for an Emmy and did very well. And the character that emerged of, as the most fascinating was John Douglas, the unit chief of what was then called the Investigative Support Unit, uh, the head of the profilers, and uh, he figures prominently in the film. And then when he got ready to retire, he called me and said, do you think anybody would be interested in reading my story? And I said, well, I certainly would be. Let's, let's, mm-hmm. see. let's take it to New York and see what happens. And we got um, a very positive reception from a number of publishers um, for what a book that became Mindhunter, and the rest is kind of history. We just kept going from there. Well, you certainly have uh, had a very successful career in everything that you have endeavored, and again, I, I'm sure you didn't imagine when you started out as a young man ready for life that you would ever be working so closely and so much, talking so much about serial killers. No, no, I didn't. Uh, In fact, uh, the other uh, uh, subject I write about from time to time is public health, and I've written several books uh, on public health with leading epidemiologists. And so 
I guess sex, violence, and pestilence is what I do. The uh, the, the mysteries that uh, concern us all and uh, and that we're all afraid of. And let's make sure that you have your best friend. If if you pass away, he will delete. He or she will delete your search engine because you'll be searching all that weird stuff and people will think you're insane. Well, maybe at the, toward the end of the interview, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask some uh, questions about public, public health and and some of those uh, interesting different topics, but let's continue on with uh, Mindhunter. Now, in case nobody's familiar, in case somebody has been living in a cave with the Taliban, (laughs) John Douglas is the the cool FBI dude who uh, is one of the original profilers. He's one of the originals who came up with the idea of profiling and, uh, like you said, Silence of the Lamb. And he has uh, connected up with Mark Olshaker to write another book. Uh, tell us about the other books you've, you've written with John. Well, we've written a number of books um, on the subject of behavioral profiling and criminal investigative analysis, different aspects of it, um, starting with Mindhunter. And uh, we uh, then eventually went to a book called The Cases That Haunt Us, where we tried to use behavioral science and criminal investigative analysis to look at uh, critical cases that were either unsolved or not solved in what people considered a satisfactory way, beginning with the Jack the Ripper case, going up through uh, uh, the uh, Lindbergh kidnapping case, um, mm-hmm. and uh, going up all the way up to the John Bonet Ramsey case, <clears throat> and uh, including Lizzie Borden and uh, several other cases like that. Um, And then uh, a book we wrote a couple of years ago called Law and Disorder, uh, once John got out, retired from the FBI, and it wasn't just about putting away the bad guys anymore, we decided to do a book where we would show how uh, profiling and behavioral analysis could be used to exonerate people who had been wrongly accused. John had worked on the West, uh, the West Memphis Three case, where three uh, teenage boys in West Memphis, Arkansas, were accused and convicted of killing three eight-year-old boys in the early 90s in what was called a satanic ritual murder. Um, it turned out to be nothing of the sort. And then mm-hmm. I brought John into the Amanda Knox case in Italy, where, again, Amanda and her uh, uh Italian boyfriend of one week, Raphael Selecito, were accused and convicted of a satanic ritual murder of Amanda's uh, English roommate. Again, a total miscarriage of justice. And then this latest book, The Killer Across the Table, is really about how you come up with the kind of information and knowledge base and skills and techniques that went into behavioral profiling, which is mm-hmm. interviewing at depth serial killers and predators in prison, which is how John started in this business. And what that allowed John and his colleagues to do for the first time was to correlate what was going on in the, in the predators and the killer's mind before, during, and after the crime with the evidence that he left, the behavioral and forensic evidence he left at the crime scene. Interesting. And we're going to get into that uh, in just a moment here about what he found interviewing uh, these serial killers. But I, I need to make a distinction here. And, and I try and ask every guest that I feel has knowledge of this topic because I get so many different answers. 
we have mental illness, and then we have uh, personality disorders. Correct. Are they different or are they the same? Can they interchange? Talk about that. Well, Tricia, you've asked a very important and, and relevant question because human behavior and sanity, if you will, or uh, uh, mental health always exists on a continuum. And all of us experience the basic emotions of love, hate, jealousy, envy, revenge. But most of us are able to conform our behavior and we have uh, stops on our own behavior uh, and our own impulses. Uh, the people we're talking about don't. Either that or they don't care about it. And I would make the case, and I think we've shown this in our work, that anyone who takes a life in cold blood, uh, particularly planned ahead of time, or as the law says, malice aforethought, mm -hmm. is probably mentally ill on some level or another, almost by definition. But that mm -hmm. doesn't mean they're insane. Insane is a legal definition, which really goes all the way back to the British McNaughton case in the 1700s, uh, right. which first established the principle of not guilty by reason of insanity. And that meant somebody who really did not know the difference between right and wrong and was not able to conform his or her, almost always his, behavior to the dictates of society. Now, and, the people Mark, we're talking Mark, about... Mark, oh, I'm sorry. Sure. You, no, that's exactly what I was going to say. Give us examples of those people, like Andrea... Yeah. Um, the, anyway, yeah, please go ahead. Well, I think you're on the right track, because if, you're, if you were going to talk about Andrea Yates, that yes. would be a perfect example. Uh, if you take two cases where mothers killed their children, Susan Smith and Andrea Yates, Susan Smith... Uh, drowned her children in a car uh, after claiming that a large black man had hijacked the car and taken the children away. Um, and it turns out she had actually driven them into a lake and killed them because uh, she was involved with another man who uh, said the children had no place in her, their lives. That may be somewhat mentally ill, but she understood the difference between right and wrong. Andrea Yates, who drowned her young children in a bathtub to save them from hell, that was a completely delusional act. And so mm -hmm. we would make the case that even though both may have had some mental illness, Susan Smith was clearly responsible for her actions. She knew what she was doing. Andrea Yates, on the other hand, was a very unfortunate case all the way around, who was just delusional. And I would think delusion, in other words, not really being in touch with reality, would be a pretty good example of the delineation that you're making, Tricia, between serious, serious mental illness and the kind of character disorder that you referred to. Right, and let's let's give an example of a character disorder. And the only one that pops into my mind first is is Ed Kemper. Would he not be personality disordered? This guy was, I mean, I say nuts, but I mean personality disordered. Am I on the right path, well, or am I just am I nuts? <clears throat> He was, but uh, one of the things that runs throughout uh, our new book, The Killer Across the Table, is the idea of um, heredity versus environment, nature versus mm -hmm. nurture. And generally, the people who end up as serial predators have some kind of hardwiring or predisposition to uh, 
antisocial acts. Uh, they can't control their temper. They have hostility. They have envy, all kinds of things. But generally, they end up, they start out with a pretty bad background, which uh, uh, either abuse or neglect or, or something or other that we see. And uh, that's not to excuse them. That's just to explain why it happens. And Ed Kemper exactly. probably would not have ended up a serial killer, but for the kind of background he had. Um, it started out um, where his mother didn't find, think she could control him. She sent him to live with his grandparents. He was frustrated one day and actually killed his grandparents, was sent to a juvenile uh, facility. It didn't do him any good. When he was let out, uh, his mother uh, essentially said, you're not a human being anymore. You're going to live in the basement. I can't trust you with your right. sister or anybody else. And so in that way, he probably evolved into a serial killer. And uh, I have to say, um, maybe not a popular statement, but uh, Ed Kemper is one of the few serial killers who John and I actually have a certain amount of compassion for. In most cases, we really don't. Our compassion is solely with the victims, which, of course, it mm -hmm. is in this case. Of course, but you do have to to be one human being to another. You have to say this guy, poor guy, locked in the basement. His mother said, "You're yes. an animal. I can't trust you." My God, and he was about six seven and uh, huge guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, I and and what's interesting about Ed Kemper, as opposed to almost any other killer we've studied, is you know he killed. Um, these young co-eds at the University of California at Santa Cruz um, because he was frustrated that he would never be able to have uh, a girlfriend or, or wife like that, he felt, based on his upbringing and what his mother had said. And eventually he worked his way up, and again, not condoning this, just explaining, worked his way up to bludgeoning his mother to death, cutting off her head, uh, and then he drove away, but then turned himself in. In other words, he once finished. he had gotten to the actual mm -hmm. object of his hatred and frustration, he was done. He turned himself in, expected to go to prison where he's remained, you know, to this day. Yeah, yes, he was just working up to mommy, basically. I will never... Well, yes, and I, again, I don't mean to make light of that or make a joke no, no. of it, but uh, you do find um, one of the common traits is... A, a dominant and domineering mother in in a lot of these cases, and we can we can get into that because that is another fascinating subject. But the one thing I remember about Ed Kemper, and I will remember this till the day I die, is he, for some reason, took out his mother's larynx because she was yes. you know, always, in his mind, in his uh, word, always bitching at him. He threw Correct. it in, he threw it in the disposal, and it popped right. back up and spit right back out on him and, and landed on him. And he says, my God, she's still bitching at me. And exactly I'll right. never forget. I, I thought, oh, wow, that guy is just, he, if he had just killed mom, I, I, and I, again, this is not the way to handle it, but you have to think, if he had just killed mom first, maybe no. none of these other kills. Uh, well, you're happened. absolutely right. And, and he did... Um he did indulge in that kind of symbolism. Uh, several of his victims, he buried their heads outside uh, the house that he shared with his mother and uh, pointing up at her because he said mm -hmm. she always said she wanted people to look up to her. So um, that's a very macabre um, interpretation of, of, of that particular remark. 
Exactly. And one other thing about uh, Ed Kemper, he is a genius, isn't he? Isn't he, like, brilliant? Well, I wouldn't say he's a genius. There, Fortunately, um, there are no true Hannibal Lecters uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. If there were, they probably wouldn't go into that line of work. They probably right. would uh, find. But uh, Ed was certainly um, way above average in intelligence and very sensitive. Um, you know, on the one hand, he was able to kill these people he didn't know. On the other hand, he had a, a fairly deep level of sensitivity and introspection. So like most uh, serial predators, he had, um, you know, several different instincts warring within him, this deep feel, deep-seated sense of inadequacy, and at the same time, a feeling of entitlement because of what he felt had been done to him. Mm-hmm. Exactly. His is a, a whole other case that many books have been written on, and, and uh, we could, I'm sure we could talk about just him all day long. But let's get back to your book. It's a new mm-hmm. book out with John Douglas. And we're talking with Mark Olshaker, and it's called The Killer Across the Table. And uh, Mr. Douglas actually went into the prisons and met with these serial killers. Let's talk about that. Tell us the basic of, of the book and maybe give us some great examples of what you discovered. Well, what, well, John originally went into the prisons and penitentiaries when he was a young uh, FBI agent and instructor at what they called the road schools. Uh, they would send instructors out from Quantico to go to various police departments and law enforcement agencies around the country to teach FBI techniques. And John, who was there with his partner, Robert Ressler, decided... Well, and this was back in the 1970s, as long as we're out here, let's try to go to the penitentiaries and talk to the real experts, the people who really know this subject. And they were able to get in and talk to a lot of people. Ed Kemper happened to be the first, but they also talked to Charles Manson, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, many others. Richard Speck, who had killed eight student nurses in Chicago, in uh, not a serial killer, but a uh, spree, but a uh, mass murderer, and mm-hmm. through this, uh, they realized that they could start predicting behavior or interpreting behavior based on what these criminals had told them. Out of that came a study of thirty-six serial killers. Eventually, uh, an academic book called Sexual Homicide, Patterns, and Motives. And after that, the Crime Classification Manual, which uh, John is one of the four co-authors on and did for uh, police work and uh, law enforcement what the uh, DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, had done for psychiatry, which was to classify crimes according to behavior and motive. And it's been a tremendous boon in police work. So what we did in our book, um, I have to say that as many of your uh, listeners will know, uh, our first book, Mindhunter, has been uh, made into a dramatic series by Netflix. about to go into its second season and the first very season thank you thank you we're 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 actually very very pleased with it and the first season deals with these uh prison interviews and so what we thought we would do uh since everybody seems to be so interested in this is we would take a deep dive into the interviews themselves and show how they were conducted but rather than rehash all of the old stories that everybody knows, we thought we'd take four killers 
who John interviewed in his ongoing uh, research after he left the Bureau, and uh, show how they uh, these interviews take place, what you learn, what you have to do to get to the truth, and uh, and what you get out of it. Uh, the first one is a is not a serial killer, though he may ultimately have ended up being. His name is Joseph McGowan. He was a high school science teacher in New Jersey with an advanced mm-hmm. degree, with a master's degree, and he uh, strangled and sexually assaulted a seven-year-old uh, a girl from his neighborhood who was coming to his house to collect for two boxes of Girl Scout cookies oh, that he had bought. And uh, again, uh, it's hard to understand how somebody could do something this depraved, but we try to explain it. We try to show what was going on through these people's mind. Uh, mm-hmm. The next is a case, a man named Joseph Condro, who raped and murdered uh, young girls. But what's interesting about this one, and so totally depraved, is rather than finding strangers, he would prey on the daughters of friends of his because he felt they were easier to uh, easier to get to trust him, and uh, he wouldn't be suspected. And then we often think of people like Ted Bundy as being among the most prolific serial killers in history. Actually, mm-hmm. our next case, a man named Donald Harvey, uh, was probably mm-hmm. one of the most, if not the most, prolific serial killer in American history. Killed probably close to 100 people, operated for almost 20 years without being caught, and people were dying right around him, and they were looking right through him. The reason he was an orderly in a hospital, and these mm-hmm. were all attributed to natural deaths, and yet he was killing people for all kinds of reasons. Claimed it was mercy killing, but many of them were, uh, m- many of them were very vicious and brutal and very painful. And finally, we have someone who doesn't conform to most of the stereotypes, a man named Todd Kolhep, who rather than being kind of on the margins of society, was a a very successful real estate agent and broker in Mm -hmm. South Carolina, making about $350,000 a year. And unbeknownst to anyone, he had killed seven people. Uh, at least seven people, maybe more. And his case finally came to light. You may remember when a woman named Kayla Brown was released from a shipping container in the woods where she had been yeah. held for six weeks, chained to the wall. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So what do these people have in common? What's different about them? And what do we learn from them? That's what the killer across the table well, is let's, all about. Let's talk- if you don't mind, if if you don't mind, let's talk about what some of them have in common. Um, I, Todd is one that just I, again, so many of these. While you're bringing up the names, I just my blood pressure is about ready mm-hmm. to go through the roof there. Uh, As well, you it know, should. Just, yeah, I, I and again, I, I'm just going to get on my soapbox here for 30 seconds. Sure. We've got to stop. We have got to stop creating these killers, people. And like you said, uh, Mark, it starts with. The, the parenting, the upbringing, and I'm sorry, ladies, it does have a lot to do with mothering. Not all the time, but most of the time you could trace it back to something funky that happened in their childhood with their mother. And I don't know how we stop it. I don't know how we get people to change. I just know it has to happen because more and more are being created every single day. And there are signs all the way through their lives that point to a very 
real possibility of a person turning into a killer. We need to recognize those signs and somehow step in. I don't know how to do that. I haven't figured that part out yet. But well, Tricia, that's very true, though. There almost always are signs. For example, if you have a child or a teenager who is exploitive or cruel to animals, particularly small animals, torturing mm-hmm. animals or, or killing them, that's a pretty good sign that this is a very antisocial, angry personality. And mm-hmm. there's got to be some kind of intervention. Uh, will all of them grow up to be serial killers? No. But I can guarantee you people with those kind of predilections will grow up to be very angry, antisocial people. So, you know, John, uh, people are always asking John, you know, can you tell who, who's a potential um, uh, predator early in life? And he says, Sure, but so can any good elementary school teacher, and Mm -hmm. that's important to know. It it is, and that's scary. You talk to any, especially elementary school teacher, about the kids in their classroom, and it will scare the hell out of you. Right. Um, Now, having said that, um, most of these these guys will also have brothers who did not grow up to be criminals, and so that's the one thing the one thing we stress over and over again and we talk about it at the end of the of the book the killer across the table is that while there may be influences on them and very negative influences to do this kind of thing to take another life to hurt another person wantonly and willfully that is a choice. It's a choice you make, yes. and it's a choice that you're going to have to live with no matter what the extenuating circumstances are. Mm-hmm. It does, nothing excuses it. Nothing exactly. makes it okay, and you do have to suffer your consequences if you do something that horrific. Exactly. Um, if we could just go back, this is in Chapter 23, What Made mm-hmm. Todd Tick? And mm-hmm. uh, this is Todd Cole Hip's arrest, and it's about him, like you mentioned earlier. Uh, if you could just... Uh, Focus on a bit what he did, and then maybe what would uh, be his his thing in common that he would have with the other people in the book. Well, first of all, I think that uh, the one thing that almost all uh, predators, sexually based predators, and they mostly all are sexually based on one level or another, uh, that they all have in common is, as I say, this dichotomy of personality. They have a deep-seated feeling of inadequacy for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. and together with that, they have a sense of grandiosity and entitlement that lets them believe that they are owed something, that they're not getting a fair shake, that they should be able to do whatever they want. And when you combine that with the sociopathic lack of empathy for any other person, where any other person is just an object to be used rather than to empathize with or to understand or to have any sympathy for their suffering, that becomes a very dangerous combination. Now, Todd Kohlhepp is a was a reasonably intelligent uh, young man. Uh, he was uh, not really wanted by either of his parents who split up when he was very young. And he went out to live with his father in Arizona, who by all uh, uh, reports was kind of neglectful. And then one day he, um, in a move that he still says he can't explain, uh, he was attracted to a young neighborhood girl, a 15-year-old. He was 16 at the time, I believe, or maybe 17. And um, he went over to her house and he um, essentially raped her. And uh, uh, 
it was a very traumatic experience for her, also for him. Uh, but they didn't know what to do with him. Uh, they, the juvenile facilities really weren't adequate. He was put in adult prison. Uh, he mm-hmm. stayed there and for until he was in his 20s. So he essentially grew up without any normal adolescence, and he came out with a college degree, intelligent, but really having no idea how to interact with people. And so he had um, no sense of how to treat other people, and he kind of had to make it up as he went along. Uh, His first crimes that we know about were he bought a motorcycle from a uh, shop in the area, and uh, he felt that he was being disrespected, that they were laughing at him because he didn't know how to ride it. He uh, wanted to bring it back. They laughed at him some more, and he came Mm -hmm. back and shot four people there. That crime went totally undetected until years later, he'd already killed three other people at that point, when Kayla Brown was uh, discovered in... uh, in this shipping container on his 100-acre property out in the woods. Now, what's very Mm -hmm. interesting about this one, Tricia, is when you hear about somebody, a woman uh, partially clothed, chained to the wall in in a shipping container or any other kind of secret location, you think, ah, this man wants a sex slave. And in most cases, that's what it is. In this particular case, he had shot her boyfriend in front of her uh, in another complicated uh, 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 scenario because he thought they were trying to rob him and he was very wary of other people. He'd never, because of his background, never been able to develop trust in anybody. And so... Mm -hmm. He kept her because he didn't know what else to do with her. And uh, eventually he probably would have killed her because he didn't know what else to do with her. But it wasn't the typical situation. So it was very interesting for John to uh, study Todd Kohlhepp and get answers from him and find out um, what was really going through his mind when he did these things. And also, interestingly enough, uh, you know, somewhat a way like uh, Kemper, Todd told. Kolhep agreed to cooperate with John with the idea that he didn't really understand why he had done the things he did and wanted to. He knew he was going to be in prison for the rest of his life and just Mm -hmm. wanted to understand. So, um, again, not to excuse a single thing that Todd Kolhep did, but you have to have a certain amount of at least respect for somebody who was that introspective, which is not common for these kind of guys. It's not common. So the what would you say the main thing? Is there a running theme between yeah, all of I these think the, the running theme is that in the subject of nature and nurture, it's both that usually contribute, that these are people who are outside of, even though they may be part of society, they are outside of society in that they feel they can do whatever they want. And most of them, if they are not stopped, they will continue going. Um, uh, they they were able to compartmentalize their lives, as Todd Kohlhepp did. Um, even uh, Joseph Condro, uh, on the, one, a day that he had uh, raped and murdered uh, a young woman who was, a, uh, who was the daughter of some friends of his, he was able to go to school with his ex-wife and go to a parent-teacher conference for one of his own children. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if that's not compartmentalizing in a very bizarre yeah, yeah. way, I mean... 
know. That's definitely it. You also mentioned in your book, which is something uh, almost like a new phenomenon, at least new in as far as this is we've discovered it. I believe it's been going on probably for a long time, is the angel of death, uh, Donald Harvey. Now, I interviewed uh, a gentleman um, a while back who said that this type of killing, this so-called mercy killing, uh, done by nurses and by anybody that has access to these people, it's really much bigger than we realized. And I don't think, like you said, mercy killing, well, as you know, you still can't do it, but at least that would be something you could hold on to. Tell us what Donald, Donald Harvey did that was anti-mercy uh, killing. Right. And and you're absolutely right, Tricia. I mean, even as we've, um, the last couple of weeks, we've seen a case in Germany and another case in the United States um, of uh, so-called uh, mercy killing uh, hospitals. Normally what this is, it, it, it falls under two uh, categories. One is the so-called mercy killing, which in fact is nothing of the sort. It's about power. It's about control. And that's really what is the common thread amongst all of these serial killers, manipulation, domination, and control of another person. And that's exactly what, uh, that's exactly what Donald Harvey did. And, you know, most uh, serial killers have to go out to hunt for their victims, just the way we say a lion on the Serengeti plain sees a lot of other animals, and he's got to figure out which is the vulnerable one, which is the one who he can go after. Donald Harvey didn't have to do that. Donald Harvey was like in a zoo where all the animals were there for him. Uh, All he Mm -hmm. had to do was choose which ones he wanted to uh, do. And what's very interesting is he went from hospital to hospital and nobody wanted to uh, look closely enough to figure out what he had done. It was only when uh, there was a mandatory... uh, There was a mandatory autopsy because someone had died in an accident, and the medical examiner happened to notice the smell of bitter almonds, which is Mm a uh, telltale sign of cyanide poisoning. Mm -hmm. Um, The other motivation that we see in these kind of uh, hospital killings is what we call the hero phenomenon, where someone tries to get somebody into a state of near death and then tries to revive them to look like the hero. And uh, again, that's a sense of domination, manipulation, and control, and the sense of self-aggrandizement and trying to make yourself look good. But in all of these cases, these are cold-blooded murders. And what's interesting is the hospital killings are one of the few cases where we do see women involved in what we would call serial murder. Uh, Mm -hmm. Generally, this is a man's field, and so the Eileen Warnoses that we all know about are are really in the great minority. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And getting back to Donald Harvey for a moment. Sure. So he, he wants this power, and, and right. he, it is powerful. I mean, think about it. You're playing God. Mm-hmm. What? Why? I did Again, going back to his childhood, can we point to something there? Well, what we certainly can. He was, um, he was sexually abused by an uncle and uh, other, uh, and, and other uh, people eventually. And um, so he was, uh, <clears throat> but he learned to blend right in. He was a very affable, easygoing guy and uh, people trusted him. They seemed to like him and they didn't realize 
what he was doing. Um, but he probably had uh, this hostility and this antisocial feeling uh, all along the way. And he, and he learned from his environment. Remember, serial killers by definition are successful killers. They've, they've seen how it's done and they get away with it. Donald Harvey was so analytical that he would even understand which uniforms people in the hospitals wore so that if he were in the a department that he shouldn't have been in, he would learn, he would steal a uniform that reflected that department so that, again, people would look right through him. Wow, that's, that's some definitely, definitely big heavy-duty planning. And what's interesting, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the bitter almond smell uh, mm-hmm. that the, uh, the person conducting the autopsy smelled is it true that something like only 40% of people can actually detect that smell? You know, I've heard, I've heard various statistics, and I don't know, um, but certainly this person was, um, certainly this person was uh, sensitive to that, and Donald Harvey uh, knew about this. What he hadn't counted on was that there would be an autopsy. Had there not been an yeah. autopsy, there wouldn't have been an issue for him. Hadn't been an autopsy, like you said, no issue. If this guy hadn't been, mm-hmm. if he'd been one of those people that couldn't smell it, wouldn't have been an issue. That just everything was playing along so great with him, and then boom, you know the right. one two punch. And, and you autopsy, have to understand yeah. that in a lot of cases, um, what works for these guys is not only planning but luck. And uh, Donald mm-hmm. Harvey's luck was very good, and his victims' luck was very bad. And you do have a, a very interesting interview in the in the book with him. Uh, mm-hmm. All of them are just absolutely fascinating. I want to cover just a few quick topics, if we could. Sure. Uh, that I'm going to jump around here just a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, oh, where am I here? Let's talk about your Emmy-winning documentary. Tell us, get into more detail about that, please. I think that's just fascinating. Well, actually, I, I've have won an Emmy for another, but this was Emmy nominated, but uh, yeah, we, did, well, we didn't well, win in this case, but it was well, called I'll, Mind I'll of a Serial Killer. And what's okay. interesting is um, as soon as it was on, uh, John's unit was, uh, which was already busy to begin with, was besieged by uh, other requests for cases around the country. But what we did was we followed a case. Uh, uh, this was uh, a serial murderer of uh, prostitutes and street people in Rochester, New York. His name was Mm -hmm. Arthur Shawcross. And we showed through a combination of typical police work and forensic work and behavioral profiling and uh, understanding what the uh, offender was likely to do, how this guy was caught, and then how he was was, um, tried and convicted, what the prosecution strategy that uh, the FBI helped uh, fashion was. Uh, as soon as he was caught, he uh, immediately developed a case of uh, multiple personality disorder, mm-hmm. which is not uncommon. And let me say, again, not to make light of it, um, I have seen uh, evidence and cases uh, through videotape and examination of young children who have been uh, sexually abused or, and or physically abused. And these kids unquestionably, in my mind, have real multiple personality disorder as a way to uh, escape from the horrors that they're living, from, living through. Right. On the other hand, if you find um, a serial killer or predator who is uh, arrested 
and suddenly, for the first time, seems to develop multiple personality disorder, uh, you can be pretty sure that's a ruse. That's a defense strategy. And uh, Arthur, Arthur, Arthur Shawcross mm-hmm. was, uh, again, I, I don't want to use the word character like it's a cutesy little thing, but boy, he was he's something else. Now, is he still alive? No, I believe he he passed away in prison, um, if I'm if yeah. I'm not mistaken. And he was somebody who uh, insinuated himself into the into the uh, in, into the investigation. He was friendly with uh, many members of the police department, so he could keep up with what was going on. And what was interesting is the only thing that the FBI got wrong in the profile of Arthur Shawcross was they said that he was uh, about thirty. They thought. Uh, from his behavior, uh, from the behavioral clues. Turns out he was 45. Well, guess Mm -hmm. what? He had been in prison for 15 years for raping and molesting a young boy and girl, and then had been let out on parole. So those 15 years, he was essentially on ice. His personality was kind of frozen in place. And Mm -hmm. so even though it was uh, the wrong age, um, that accounts for those 15, uh, 15 years. And again, many of these guys do very well in prison in terms of being able to be model prisoners, uh, adhere to the rules. And then when they get out again, um, they go back to their murderous ways. Exactly. And that's the problem. Let's, let's focus on that a moment. This guy, Shawcross, mm-hmm. raped two kids that we know of. Yep. And of course, he's going to behave behind bars because he's contained. He can't do anything. He's going to be perfect. And he's going to look like the greatest guy and just the the greatest success story. We're going to let him go. Do you not believe that when somebody commits a crime of rape, when you're an adult and there are children, that that's, that's it? That's all she wrote? They're not going to Christian, change. Christian, you've, you've, you've hit are. on a very an issue that's very sensitive to us. Um, we do believe that there are there are there are probably about six or seven basic rapist typologies going all the way from you know a date rape up to um, what we call a sadistic rapist whose whole uh, aim in the rape is to hurt and then kill the victim. So um, those people obviously we don't feel can be rehabilitated. Somebody who's uh, who, who we get to early, who has uh, committed a fairly nonviolent rape, sometimes uh, a, a certain typology, these people can be rehabilitated. But once you get to the point where you're a repeat offender, where you have committed violence, uh, where you've taken a life or threatened one, um, we don't find there's very much hope for rehabilitation. So in the case you mentioned, if you were going to take a hundred cases like that, what mm-hmm. we say is, what's your acceptable failure rate on parole? Are you there willing you for? Are you willing to have a three percent failure rate, a two percent mm-hmm. failure rate? Um, we think any failure rate at all is unthinkable because. Um, you know, we all believe. Uh, I believe it was uh, a formulation first. Um, first uh, stated by Increase Mather right after the Salem witch trials, where he said, uh, you know, we would rather let a hundred guilty men go free than uh, convict one innocent one. And of course, we all believe that, but it's not that simple, because if you Mm -hmm. let those hundred guilty men go free, how many innocent victims are they going to produce? 
how many how many more victims do they have to uh, create to show us who they are and they need to exactly. be stopped? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, makes me crazy. Okay, let's move on. Just like I said, I'm going to pop around here to a couple of different sure. uh, issues. Um, let's talk about the the personality disordered person for a moment. Uh, we mm-hmm. have things like borderline personality, mm-hmm. and the reason why I I know about this is because I deal with people who have actually been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And they're not they're not all killers or murderers. They just no. create havoc wherever they go. I mean, it's drama. It's you know the drama queen and and the gossip and oh my god, it makes you crazy. And we all well, know people sure. like that. Exactly. Not saying they're all borderline, but they could be. Now, a borderline personality. They can actually be a killer as well. It could evolve sure. into that. Is there well, any way? Go ahead. Yeah, and when we when I believe the term borderline personality disorder comes from the fact that uh, it was originally classified as a borderline disorder between neurosis and psychosis. Um, right. So I don't know if that means much anymore, but certainly the borderline personality is on the borderline with uh, the sociopath in that he uh, or she, um, because they women uh, adhere to this too, uh, are uh, they have very little empathy for other people. They use people. Uh, their their truth to them is a commodity. In other words, whatever works for them is the truth. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, a lot of person, a lot of uh, political personalities fit this description. A lot oh, yes. of uh, corp corporate executives, entertainment executives uh, fit this description. But they're not criminals. Uh, when you right. get a borderline personality disorder, it's also uh, directed toward this antisocial behavior. And when I say antisocial, I mean taking other lives, hurting other people for mm-hmm. their own satisfaction. You know, that's when we go from the personality disorder to it doesn't matter anymore. Now it's criminal behavior. Exactly. It's a nothing. Don't care what you label it. it it's criminal behavior. Right. Well, let's let's just want to find out if 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 we've missed something along the lines here. Is there any way to uh, through therapy or drugs or both to change a borderline personality disordered person? I don't know if we if the. Th- there may be some uh, therapies that work for certain people, but um, what we probably can do with early enough intervention is to keep them from becoming criminals. And yes. sometimes that's all we can hope for. Um, and But what's very interesting is you find criminal uh, behavior in different types of people. For instance, let's take somebody like... Uh, Ed Kemper, who was very smart, he would, uh, in in what he did, he would stop uh, when he saw a co-ed on the street and he would, uh, in his car, and he'd say, where are you going? And she would tell him, and then he would look at his watch and say, well, I don't know, um, I've got to be a certain place, um, I, I don't really know if I can take you. All right, okay, I'll, I'll do it, get in. And so by being hesitant to take them, mm-hmm. he would disarm them and they wouldn't suspect it. It would be easier for him to do what he wanted with them before they realized what was happening. Now, let's fast forward several decades to Bernie Madoff. Not a uh, 
not a violent criminal, not a killer, not a rapist, but certainly a predator. Um, toward the end of his career um, as a Ponzi scheme operator, people would come to him because they heard he gave such good returns and they'd want to get in on his uh, funds. And he would say, well, look, I'm not taking any new people now. And they'd say, look, you got to let me in. I, I, I need this investment. Right. And so-and-so sent me and they say good things about you. And finally, after hesitating and saying, well, all right, okay, I'll, I'll take your money, but look, I'm very busy. Just leave me alone. You'll get your return, but don't bother me. Don't even call me for two or three years and, uh, you know, I'll take care of you. So even though it's a completely different type of crime, the motivation and the technique between him, between a nonviolent Bernie Madoff and a violent Ed Kemper is very much the same. It's very Good, good examples and, and easy for people like me to understand. Uh, I Just real briefly, like I said, I've had a couple of people I know uh, who have been diagnosed. And one of the people I know who's been diagnosed said that what they had to do with her is almost train her like a dog. She didn't understand why she needed to say these things and do these things mm-hmm. other than it was to keep the chaos down. You know, okay, this happened. You need to say, gosh, I'm so sorry. What can I do to help? Never occur to them to uh, offer help to somebody that's going through a bad, horrible time. But being trained like that, they say it, they know it will work, and it will keep the drama and all the, you know, stuff kind of piled down. I found that really interesting. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you can't probably instill uh, empathy in a lot of cases, but mm-hmm. if you can modify behaviorally the individual uh, to compensate for that, uh, that sounds like a working proposition. It, it, and it seems to work. Uh, but again, it takes a lot. Apparently, again, I'm going by what my friend, the borderline, told me, that uh, any person that treats a borderline, they supposedly require them to have a psychiatrist that they have to go see because it is so draining and so emotional and they're so clever and so manipulative. Absolutely. No question about that. And the one thing these people are generally, they may not be super geniuses, but they are very manipulative. Uh, most of them, they are very glib, superficially charming, and because that's what's important to them, the hunt, the prey, that's what's important to them. So those are the skills that they develop, just like a hunter would develop skills with a rifle. Very good point. And so, yes, everybody, you you can get on the Internet. You can find a definition of a borderline. And if a borderline reads a definition of a borderline, they will always say, well, that's not me. So right. uh, just, just remember there's a great book out there. I think it's called Walking on Eggshells, and it uh, can help you deal with a borderline in your life. You're not going to change them. They're not going to do the right thing. You just got to learn how to keep the keep the chaos down. Uh, we're talking with uh, the author, co-author of the book, The Killer Across the Table, Mark Allshaker, along with uh, he wrote the book along with John Douglas, the Mindhunter FBI person that we all love and adore. Okay, and we again, I want to re- uh, just reiterate, we love and adore you too, Mark. Okay. Thank you. Thank oh, you. I, you're I, I feel very loved by this interview, Tricia. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Just a couple more questions, okay? Sure. Um, you have done extensive work. Serial killers, you know about the victims' families. You, you've seen both sides. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you would like to see change in the criminal justice system in connection with any of these, these victims and the serial killers? Is there something we could be doing better in the 
criminal justice system? Well, you know, I think the criminal justice system has a lot of issues, and uh, I'm certainly one of those people who think that too many nonviolent offenders, particularly for drug cases and things like that, are being locked up. But um, in terms of the predators that we deal with, um, I think there's very little you can do other than lock them up and warehouse them. And I want people to understand that while rehabilitation is a very nice concept and it may work for other kinds of murder even for the kind of predatory murder sexually based uh, it doesn't work and these people are pretty much what they are going to be um, I would uh, also we the one thing we have never done throughout our our books in any way is glorify these killers in some ways we may empathize with one of them uh, here and there but the work is always for the victims the victims and their families are always paramount in our minds and that's why even though it's a controversial concept we firmly believe in victim impact statements uh, during sentencing because uh, people say, well, the victim shouldn't have a say in this because the crime is the crime, but we don't believe that. We believe that when uh, someone commits a violent crime, he creates a relationship, a relationship mm -hmm. between himself and the victim. And it's not a relationship the victim wanted, but it's there. And so once that relationship exists, that's a whole new dynamic. And the victim, or if the victim's dead, the victim's family should definitely have a say in what happens to that person. Now, you know, we, there's a new concept of restorative justice and victims meeting with their um, with, with their criminals, and sometimes they can work things out, and that's fine with me. If it works, great, but it's always got to be about the victim. Very, very well said. Two more questions here. Sure. Uh, are you are you familiar with WebSleuth.com, uh, the true crime discussion forum by chance? Well, I am now, yes. Okay, very good. Okay. Well, that that's something that I own, and uh, people from all over the world come and discuss true crime, and they also want to do something to help victims. Uh, don't want to interfere with cases or, or be obnoxious like that. We're not like little old ladies like Jessica Fletcher is going mm -hmm. around helping. No, no. We have scientists and doctors and little old ladies like me uh, discussing true crime and just kind of picking apart all the evidence, and we do a lot with the missing we get their names out there and a lot with cold cases to kind of keep their cases alive. You've seen the Internet come into power and have seen what people can do. Is there any advice that you would give well, somebody like our, our members what we could do to help? Well, the Internet is a double-edged sword. And uh, oh, yeah. what we've often said, and this is certainly the case with the West Memphis 3 case, with the Amanda Knox case, with the John JonBenet Ramsey case, uh, if the story that's put out or it becomes popular, whether it's put out by the prosecution, the police, the defense, the media, whoever, uh, if that story is better than what actually happened, the truth mm -hmm. and evidence doesn't have much uh, chance. But I think what you're doing is wonderful because if you're putting out real information, yes. real evidence, uh, real uh, accounts don't allow, that, don't allow that, people nope. can, uh, that people can use, can understand, and perhaps solve cold cases, I think that's a tremendous service. Well, thank you. And that's true. We do not allow rumors. Uh, if someone comes on to WebSleuth.com and says, well, you know, I'm a, 
I'm the boyfriend of the victim. We take them off the forum, contact them, make sure they're not lying, and then we call it verifying. Then they come back on, and they are really the boyfriend. They've That's been verified. Great. That's great. Yeah, so we try and keep all of that, that pardon my expression, crap out of <laughs> out of this. The stu- Again, I use the word drama, but my God. This never ends. Anyway. Well, and look, let's be honest, Tricia. This is a very dramatic subject, so it uh, it certainly lends itself to over-dramatization and uh, a lot of rumors and a lot of false information. So if you have a forum, if you have a platform that can separate that out, that's terrific. And that's what we do. And the moderators are the ones that work night and day, volunteer, and the members, I can't say enough about them. I just sit back and go, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> Okay, now we need we need something from you, Mark mm-hmm. Olshaker, author with John Douglas of The Killer Across the Table. Tell us what we can expect in season two of Mindhunter. Give us a little, just a little something that nobody else knows. Well, let's see. I I don't know how much I'm allowed to tell, but uh, oh, but, but but uh, I can tell you this is already um, this is known to some people already. Uh, we, okay. You can expect to see Charles Manson. You can expect to see the uh, Atlanta child murders, which is really one of the cases that put John and his unit on the map. And uh, mm-hmm. and so, uh, and interestingly enough, I, uh, John and I, two weeks ago, had uh, had lunch in New York with Jonathan Groff, who plays the John Douglas character on the show. He's terrific. He's a great guy. And... Um, uh, we hope to see more of him in the years to come. He is a great guy. Is he married? If he's not, no, he's he available. Not. He well, is no. available. <laughs> if, and if, if maybe he's gay, but you know, if he wants an old bat, I'm right here. <laughs> Mark Olshaker, thank you so so much again. The book thank with John you, Douglas. You're a ter- you're you're a terrific host. Oh, thank you. It's a killer across the table. And now that I have your number, Mark, we will mm-hmm. be calling you, young man. So don't, um, don't, uh, don't expect I will to, expect away to hear from you. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Take care now. Thank you, Tricia. You bet. Bye-bye. Until we meet again, my darling true crime angels, Tricia Griffith saying so long. It's WebSleuth's radio podcast, and we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye now. Don't forget, patreon.com if you want to support WebSleuth. Five bucks a month. Great way to listen for extra content. Bye-bye.